Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your guest host in this episode of the podcast. This is my first time hosting the LUF Optimizing Human Performance podcast. After some discussion with Patty and members of the LUF team, we agreed that it might be worthwhile for me to host guests from time to time, particularly those guests who are from my peer groups in both the military and fire service. I would like to thank listeners for tuning in and say how grateful I am to all of the guests who have contributed to the show over the past two years. That brings me to today's guest, who I am honored to be having a conversation with. Our guest for this episode is Josh Wiener. Josh is a lieutenant with the FDNY and is currently assigned to the Rescue Battalion. His previous assignments were to Division 7 as a covering lieutenant and Squad 252 and Ladder 133 as a firefighter. Josh also spent 20 years in the United States Marine Corps as an infantry unit leader and retired at the rank of Master Sergeant. He deployed several times over the course of his 20-year career and is a combat veteran of the war in Iraq. Josh serves as a Leadership and Human Performance Advisor for Leadership Under Fire and is also an LUF plank owner. A personal disclosure, Josh is a close and trusted friend of mine and has been for many years. Josh is a quiet professional, perhaps the quietest professional I've ever served with and alongside. He keeps his pedigree, skill set, and accolades very close to his chest. And for that, Josh, I greatly appreciate your willingness to be a guest on the OIOF podcast. I'm quite confident that our listeners will benefit from your perspective. I'd like to start the conversation today by reflecting on your service as a U.S. Marine, particularly in your early years as a Marine. You entered the Marine Corps upon your graduation from high school in 1998. What was the impetus for your enlistment in the Marine Corps? Thanks, Jay. I just want to go on the record here and say um, when I first rogered up to doing this podcast, I I thought Patty was going to be doing the uh, interview. All of the people that I know that have been on the podcast said that, uh, you know, Patty does most of the heavy lifting and, uh, you know, makes them look good. So, uh, (laughs) you know, you have your work cut out for you. (laughs) She's certainly a tough act to follow. That's that's for sure. I'm already feeling the uh, the, the pressure associated with hosting a podcast. We're only a few minutes into this endeavor. So, uh, you know, to answer your question, you know, joining the Marine Corps, it's one of those things that you know I had it in my mind so early on in my life. It's kind of hard to uh, you know put my finger on it. Yeah, it was just kind of one of those things I grew up with, you know, watching uh, war movies. My father was a Vietnam veteran, so I always had a great deal of uh, respect, you know, for the military. And it was one of those things that I always thought I wanted to do as kind of like a a rite of passage. Growing up, there was really no, you know, higher honor in my mind than um, serving my country and being tested. Did you enjoy your, your initial enlistment? The first four years you spent in the Marine Corps? You know, it's like, it's like anything, you know, before you do something, you go into it with certain, you know, preconceived notions about it. And then, you know, sometimes the actual experience differs. You know, I will say that, you know, when, when, I, when I joined in 1998, you know, my initial uh, period of active duty was, you know, 98, 2002. In large part, you know, the country was going through a period of peace. You know, even though 9-11 happened while I was serving on active duty, the, you know, the, the initial response to that was uh, slow for the larger military. 
So I did a lot of training. And, you know, it's like anything, you know, you, you want to actually do the things that, that you train for. And, you know, in absence of that, that made me kind of, you know, realize, you know, maybe the Marine Corps is not, not what I thought it, thought it was. And, you know, maybe I should start looking for something else I could be happy doing. Just out of curiosity, which battalion were you assigned to as a young Marine? Third uh, Battalion, Second Marines. So you're in Camp Lejeune, yeah, or probably more accurately, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Right. Yeah, yeah. When your first period of enlistment came to an end in 2002, and you left the active duty component of the Marine Corps, what was your plan at the time, professionally? You know, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I was looking for something else that I, I could be happy doing, and I, I'm not sure, you know, exactly how it, it got in my mind to, you know, pursue the FDNY, but they they offered a um, well, the filing for the next open competitive uh, exam was while I was on active duty, and somehow or another, um, I ended up, you know, si- you know, signing up for the test and then taking the test shortly after I got off active duty. Sure, the 2002 test. When you left the active duty component, how much consideration had you given to serving in a reserve capacity going forward? I thought once I left active duty, that was it. I didn't really hold the reserve component in like the highest regard. I mean, I really didn't have anything to base that off of. You know, sure. it's just like that. Uh, you know, but that's a, that's uh, yeah, a common. It's like the, you know, that's a common sentiment that exists in the active duty component, and certainly it's understandable why that that sentiment exists. But but, but largely, it's you know, it, it's undeserved. You know, especially um, once we were fighting two wars. You know, there wasn't a reserve component. They were deploying just as much as active duty units. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think we're gonna probably reinforce that once we we start to begin to unpack the war years. If you had known you were marked that the Marine Corps or the military was was kind of slow to ramp up its response to the attacks of nine eleven, if you had known that the military and the Marine Corps was was gonna mount a large scale offensive campaign in Iraq, do you think you would have gotten off active duty? No, I, I can say that pretty like uh, unequivocally. Um, that I, that I would have stayed, you know that that's the whole reason I I joined uh, in the first place, and and even you know going through you know as you go to active duty, there's a whole process you have to go through, and you have to see people all, all throughout your chain of command, and um, uh, I remember checking out with my battalion commander. He told us like, hey, because you know by that time you know I got to active duty in November of 2002. And um, by that time, there were already rumblings. They were already talking about the invasion of Iraq. So he, he pretty much said, he's like, hey, you know, this is, this is going to happen. But the thing is, is that one of the things the Marine Corps is so good at is, you know, maintaining that state of readiness. And th- throughout my first four years, you know, there's various, like, levels of, of alert that we've been on, you know, like uh, Air Contingency Battalion, where, you know, all your stuff is packed up. You could be anywhere in the world in 48 hours. And, and part of the leadership's job is, is to keep you engaged, you know, to kind of keep, keep that edge sharp. You know, there definitely are things that come about from time to time, but nothing ever materialized for me during those four years. And I thought this is just like another, yeah, another one of those things. So I'm like, this is my chance to get out. And, yeah, like um, almost like another retention uh, ploy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I vividly remember several of my Marines who were planning to EAS and get out, and they were adamantly opposed to being victims of a stop loss, right? Like a mandated status where you can't get out but yet the the other part of them was like but if we're going to war and it's legit i'm coming (laughs) it was like they wanted to maintain their sense of autonomy but if there was a fight they they still wanted a a 
a piece of it. And many of them were kind of like in limbo during that same period as, as you were. That's why it's, it's right. just, uh, that's why I was, I was just curious to get a sense of what that felt like for, for you. Um, and, and then, and then also, you know, fast forward a couple months, uh, you know, I, I get off active duty. I, I'm going to college now. I'm sitting in a college classroom, you know, in February, 2003, you know, looking at the cover of a newspaper and, uh, you know, it's, it wasn't a good, wasn't a good feeling. Yeah. But it, it turns out you, you weren't away from the Marine Corps for, for too long. So in 2004, year two, uh, to offer some context of the war in Iraq, um, in the year that the insurgency really started to take to take shape, uh, you volunteered to serve as a combat replacement because the Marine Corps needed non-commissioned officers. You know, 2004 was an incredibly tough year for the Marine Corps in terms of casualties. You were assigned as a combat replacement to 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, and deployed to Anbar Province, Iraq. And I should mention that 1st Battalion, 7th Marines is an active duty battalion. The battalion's main body was in Al-Qaim, which is in western Anbar Province, not too far from the Syrian border. You were in a mobile assault platoon out of Camp Gannon in Huseba. And I shall also mention Camp Gannon is named after Captain Rich Gannon, who was an iconic company commander who had been killed in Ambar Province just prior to your time there. Western Iraq at this time was an unforgiving place, to put it kindly. Uh, just curious, that deployment, a deployment that you had volunteered for and had actively sought, what were some of the lessons about leadership and human performance that you learned during that particular deployment to Ambar Province? Yeah, so, so as you mentioned, 2004, the Marine Corps was kind of taking it on the chin and they needed NCOs. So I got a call, you know, like it was a perfect opportunity. I was going to college. I, it was waiting to get on the, uh, the FDNY. And I felt like I finally had the opportunity that I was um, looking for. So what ended up happening is, you know, they, they mobilized, you know, a bunch of NCOs. And, and, you know, we all, you know, worked up together at Camp Pendleton. And initially they were, they were going to send us to units that were already in country that, you know, were kind of suffering heavy casualties. What they ended up doing was uh, sending us to, to units that were deploying shortly to kind of plus them up. So our whole group kind of got divided up uh, between like 1725, I believe 35, 3rd LAR. And it was just really just kind of like random the way they kind of uh, divided us up. So I ended up in, in, in one seven, really only uh, having a, about a month or less to kind of, uh, you know, gel, you know, with, with my new unit, you know, be, before deploying. You know, some of the lessons I learned about leadership, human performance is that human performance, it's highly unpredictable. There are ways to kind of make it more predictable or attempt to, to make it predictable. But, you know, by and large, once rounds start flying, things start happening that you might not have, uh, you know, seen coming. And, um, you know, leaders on the battlefield, they're, they're, you know, they're not always the ones that, that hold the rank. You know, sometimes it, it just takes someone, anyone to kind of break through the inertia and get things, um, you know, moving in the right direction. Yeah, almost like that, that time-honored definition of leadership in a combat context. It's not he who wears the rank on their collar. It's he who the troops look to for guidance when rounds start being taken and uh sometimes it's it's like the most like unlikely candidate right yeah right right it's like somebody who suddenly is is asserting themselves who's usually pretty unassuming and and sometimes not you know sometimes it's it's the alpha male 
Right. Yeah, it's consistently the alpha male, but there's a lot of times where it's the unlikely candidate. And the guy who you thought was going to be the alpha male, when you started taking fire, you found yourselves in contact. At least that's that's been my experience, and it sounds like similar for, for you. What was it like being a, a combat replacement, a reservist, now at this point in your life, right, being assigned to a, a, a I would assume, a pretty tight-knit group of, of active-duty Marines? What was that transition like? Yeah, it, it was uh, it, it was a little bit challenging. You know, these guys been in the unit together for you know for some period of time, and and actually, uh, I don't know if mo- you know most people realize, but there's like a fairly high like turnover rate in the Marine Corps. I would say the majority of Marines do one enlistment and then move on to something else. So typically, the way it works in in, in an infantry battalion is like you know for the first two years you're the junior guy, and you know the second two years you're you're the guy in charge, and. So the NCOs that were, you know, were in this unit now on the second half of their uh, enlistment, and now they were the guys in charge. And now here we come to kind of, you know, assume, uh, you know, we, it's not that we, we didn't kick them out of all of uh, the leadership roles, but we definitely assumed some that they should have, you know, rightfully, you know, assumed. So that, you know, there was definitely a little bit, a little bit of friction, but it's pretty common, you know, in the military, you know, you, you know, you spend a couple of weeks with, with, with a group and, and, you know, you, you generally make pretty fast friends and, you know, it's just a matter of like sniffing each other out and getting used to each other. Sure. But it's interesting you, you, you mentioned about what that four-year enlistment looks like. The first two years, you're a junior guy, you're expected to follow orders. And then the second two years, you're expected to to lead actively. It's, it's such a stark contrast to the fire service, right? Where right. you're expected to largely be subordinate and subservient in, in most places, right? For, for like an extended period of time, we're talking like many, many years where the Marine Corps, you're expected to leave rather quickly. Right. Um, yeah. If yeah. Even just, if even just your, your peers or your subordinates, right? Right. Yeah. You could be a, you know, 21, 22 year old sergeant and, you know, you're in charge of 30 Marines, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Did you enjoy that deployment? I mean, cause when asked why you got out, you said, well, we're doing a lot of training. We weren't actually putting it to use and implementing it or operationalizing it. Here's your trip to the dance, man. Like the opportunity to see the elephant as they as they say. Is combat is it what you thought it would be like? Like uh it's a it's a it's a hard question to answer because, you know, like you know, once you have the actual experience that replaces what your preconceived, you know, notion of it was before, it's kind of hard to like you know, it's hard for me to even think about, you know, how I thought about it before, but I can say with, with like a fairly high degree of certainty that it was like, uh, you know, in my mind, it was like a lot more like, you know, I don't know if glamorous is the right word to use, but that's how, uh, you know, movies tend to portray war. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's it's romanticized, but, you know, the actual real thing is uh, it's a lot, a lot nastier. You know, it's it's really hard to, you know, glamorize what, what it's actually like. Yeah, I, I would... Uh... I, I would certainly tend to agree that in in film, even in literature, I, I think it, it it's commonly romanticized. But another thing also that I will add, and you know, and I'm sure it it you know people have you know varying experiences or degrees of this, but you know, it's not all action. You know, it's a, there's a lot of downtime. There's a there's a lot of boredom <laughs> and waiting. Yeah, you know, punctuated by brief, intense, you know, periods of, uh, you know, combat or you know, whatever. It, in that regard, I think it's overwhelmingly similar to to the fire department. Even in the FDNY is arguably busiest companies. Yeah, right. There's a there's a lot of downtime, 
that can be used for good, right? And then there's a there's just it's monotonous. You go through cycles sometimes where there's just not a whole heck of a lot going on, and um, that that's really where leadership at all levels I I think becomes becomes critical. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, so 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 did I enjoy it? I was grateful for the experience. I was grateful for for the the rite of passage. You know that that I was seeking, but you know I was I couldn't wait to get home. You know, and just hoping that I got home in one you know in one piece. Yeah. So it's it's funny because I think that that's somewhat of a universal sentiment. In fact, if if I've heard him say it once, I've heard him say it a million times. Roussel and deployment, like when I'm here, I want to be there, and when I'm there, I want to be here. Yeah. So you couldn't wait to get home. When you got home, did you did you miss it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time, uh, you know, to miss it. You know, you know, you, you know, it takes a little bit of time for for the, uh, for, you know, for the novelty of being home to to wear off. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you miss it. That, I think that's the most surprising sentiment of all. That when you're over there after six, seven months running around Ambar, like you said, it's 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 messy. It's a grind. It's lethal. It's unforgiving, and you can't wait for the comforts. And almost like certainties of, of life at home. And then you get home and after like a short period of time, some shorter than others, where you're like, that first moment where you're like, wait a second, I actually, wait, I actually miss, I actually miss, miss it. Certainly surprising, but yet not, right? What's pretty cool is that April 2005, you returned home from that particular deployment to Iraq. And I should mention that you're not the only member of your family who served in Anbar province. Your brother, Jeff, who was inspired to enlist in the U.S. Navy as a hospital corpsman in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. In the spring of 2005, he was assigned or deployed with 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines. And before you left Iraq in 2005, uh, you had the opportunity to see your older brother at Al-Assad Air Base in Ambar Province, which uh, is, is, is pretty cool. You're, you're leaving country um, after a tough deployment. He's coming into country with another infantry battalion. What was that encounter or experience like to see your, your older brother as you're heading home and he's heading into country? Exciting. You know, I was, I was really happy, you know, that, that we were able to kind of cross paths. He, uh, he had been deployed a year before I got reactivated. At that point, I hadn't seen him in like almost like two years. And, uh, you know, just through communicating with, um, you know, my mom and, and his wife, we were able to kind of figure out because we weren't able to communicate directly. Sure. I mean, we, you know, letters or whatever, how long letters take to get, you know, whatever, like it, it would have been impossible for, for us to coordinate that between the two of us. Uh, but yeah, just through talking to them, we, we figured out. I mean, this out. is largely pre-digital era, right? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of communications. Right. But, uh, you know, one, one of the reasons that was able to happen is because pretty much all Marine units coming into the country around that time were going through Al-Assad. You know, we had that kind of going for us and then just through talking you know, to our family, we were able to kind of figure it out. And uh, it was pretty exciting. Like, to be honest, I don't remember how exactly we were able to kind of figure out like a, a like a, a meetup. But I remember it was at like, uh, you know, the PX on, on our side. And I, I saw, <laughs> I, you know, I found him first, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it was exciting. It was, it was a great feeling. And you actually have a picture from that. I do. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. A couple of pictures. Yeah, we, 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 met, we met a couple of times over, over the course of, uh, of a couple of days. That's pretty cool, right? And I mean, obviously, credit to your family that the two of you have both stepped up to serve in Iraq at the, the toughest time. Sadly, you, your meeting with Jeff in the spring of 2005 
would be the last time you would ever see your big brother. May 7th, 2005, Jeff's platoon from 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines, was dispatched to reinforce another platoon that was in contact along the Euphrates River in Haditha. Your brother Jeff was killed in action. Josh, when and how did you find out about Jeff's death? So when I, when I got back to um, to to the states, you know, we we all uh, you know all the combat replacements detached from from the battalions that we uh, had deployed with, you know, were sent back to uh, Camp Pendleton, and they gave us the um, the option of terminating our orders early and and, and returning home, because you know, initially we we signed up for you know it was a year long obligation to include a workup and then seven month deployment and then you know demobilizing. I didn't really have anything, you know, waiting for me uh, back in New York. I, you know, I was waiting to get on you know, the fire department, but it was still going to be some time. So, you know, I was just going to go back home and be unemployed. So uh, I'm like, you know, yeah, why not just stay, stay a little longer? And, and I ended up getting sent over to the division schools to, you know, be an instructor for like forward observation. I was kind of just, you know, enjoying the back end of the deployment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no stress. Just, you know, enjoying Southern California and, uh, my my little brother and my mother decided to come out and spend a few days with me. You know, we were spending just a couple of days, you know, hanging out, you know, around San Clemente. And we got woken up one morning or, or my mother's phone went off, like, you know, f- fairly early in the morning. We, we were still sleeping, you know, probably going to be sleeping for another couple of hours. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, her reaction, um, you know, just kind of saying no, you know, repeatedly. And I didn't know what was going on. I'm, just, you know, I'm getting woken up like out of, out of sleep. You know, I see my mom's reaction and then my phone rings. It was actually my um, my sister-in-law's brother who he's only a couple of years younger than me. But uh, like, you know, we kind of grew up together. Like we, we've known each other for, for many years, um, you know, since I'm young. And he kind of, uh, you know, break, breaks the news to me that, uh, you know, Jeff is, is dead. And, uh, you know, my, my initial, you know, physical reaction, you know, it was just like kind of like a jarring experience, you know, like you're know, being woken up from that, you know, my, my heart was pounding. I, I was shaking, you know, probably from like the, you know, the flood of, uh, you know, of chemicals. The hardest part in that moment though, was, uh, you know, seeing my, my mother suffer, you know, thinking about my sister-in-law and, uh, my, my nieces, Michaela and Theodora. You know, who, you know, we're only about like, you know, five and three, uh, respectively. You know, my, my little brother was there as well. And I, you know, I, I think I, I kind of neglected him uh, a bit in, in, in that moment, even in like, you know, the following weeks, you know, up until um, he shipped out for boot camp, you know, even kind of, you know, through that, I, I was a bit hard on him. You know, I, I wish I had been more comforting, but, uh, you know, I was kind of, I was fresh off the battlefield myself. I probably still had some defense mechanisms in place of my own. Like I was in a different place in, in terms of dealing with death. While I didn't lose anyone that was like super close to me while we were in Iraq, there were a few casualties um, in, in my platoon and a few you know serious injuries, you know like loss of limbs. And even though none of those people were super close to me, it, it, it hits home because you know you are kind of uh, and and I was kind of guilty. Um, like feeling this way, like initially, but like you, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're happy it wasn't you. You know, you're happy it wasn't you, but you are, you know, you, you feel sorry for the loss. 
Sure. Yeah, I, and, and I remember actually saying that to my, you know, to Jeff when when I met him because you know he 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 was kind of in search of uh, you know something similar to me, you know, rite of passage. He felt like you know, you know, there's no no greater honor. And uh, he asked me, hey, you know, how was the deployment? You know what I mean? Did you lose guys? You know, like this and that, and kind of relayed that sentiment to him. So yeah, so I, I kind of you know I was in a different place than than my mom and my brother, and uh, they you know they still had a couple of days left in their trip. I remember, you know, my mom, my mom just wants to, she wants to get to New York, you know, she wants to be, you know, be with Maria, be with my nieces and, you know, it, you know, it's not that easy to kind of like, you know, change travel plans and, sure. and stuff like that. And I, you know, I was telling her and like, you know, I felt bad to say, like, I was almost like moving on too quickly, you know what I mean? Because like when, when you're in country and you lose someone, you know, like, you know, you're happy, it's not you, you feel bad, you know, you honor them, but then you still have to, you still have to carry on. Like, the, you know, there's still a mission you have to accomplish. You can't, like, you know. Yeah, that window for grieving is is so succinct, right? I remember losing Marines. Um, you come back and, you know, it's just like that's the ultimate low on a, on a deployment, right? There are a lot of highs, but that's the ultimate low. And then a few days later, you'd have a memorial service. Sometimes within an hour or two of, of the memorial service, you're, you're like loading up the gun trucks and you're getting ready to go on another mission, which, which in some ways is helping you to absorb, but you're, you're not there to observe the family, right? Receiving this news, you're, you're, you're not there for the wake, you're not there for the funeral, you're not there. And in some ways, you're, you're, you're somewhat isolated from that. So it's like, yeah, you, you take a moment or minutes or occasions, but in some ways, the, the combat experience, like, sounds like we've had the same ex experiences. Like, it, it, it's kind of structured in a way it allows you to kind of compartmentalize and and mourn the loss, but then to like get right back to to, to business. And you don't have that luxury at home. I mean, the, and what's really interesting and, and almost gut wrenching about your story is your your mother comes to California to celebrate your return home from a, a very lethal environment only to receive, be woken in the middle of the night to find out that your, your, your big brother was was killed in, this, in the same battle space. That's, that's just absolutely uh, gut-wrenching. Yeah, so, you know, in, in those initial moments and days, I, you know, like, like I said, like I was, I was in a different place and I was kind of like trying to move on too quickly. You know, I might have, uh, you know, come off as as even a bit callous, uh, you know, in those in those weeks. You know, and me personally, I, I didn't I didn't come to terms with my own like feeling of loss until like some years like later. You know, I, I was just trying to like. But in many ways, though, your yeah. your res your response was a product of your your training and experience, and in your service. Yeah, but like you know, like right away, like, like yeah. that, like that yeah. mechanism, that response yeah. is what allowed you to thrive in in combat as a as a as a leader in Marines. Right. That's the catch twenty two in all of this, right? They they send us off to war, and so many of uh, the tactics and techniques, not just tactical, but you know, in terms of how we interact with with each other, how we treat ourselves, right are beneficial to us in combat, but then almost become a little bit of a liability when we're here at home. Right. It's understandable now, like, you know, looking back on it, just at the time, I was not terribly helpful. I remember, I remember telling my mom, like, you know, let's like, don't think about his death, like, you know, celebrate his life. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying this early, he's dead a couple of days, you know what I mean? Like, uh, But that's the mindset that yeah. we use downrange though. Yeah.
What do you know about the, the, that event and just the, the particulars in, in terms of your, your brother was a hospital corpsman. He was assigned to a um, mobile assault platoon. I'm assuming they were in up armored Humvees. They respond to a kinetic event. There's there's troops in contact. They're going to reinforce a, a sister platoon. Um, what, what's your understanding of what of what transpired? You know, initially, t- to be honest, I, I didn't I didn't care. I, like I was uninterested in, in the details throughout. You know, the funeral services and memorial services that kind of like followed in like the months and years after. You know, I, I I met Marines that he served with. I met actually he was like a pretty close friend, another hospital corpsman uh, who was in another platoon. Then he was he actually um, was there uh, when when my brother was killed. But you know, pretty much like the uh, the gist of it was um, he he was in a reaction pl- uh, platoon, I believe, he mounted you know in, in up armor uh, Humvees, and another platoon had come under fire, and they you know they were dispatched to to help them. And uh, they ended up either making a wrong turn or the road that they were trying to go down was blocked. They got ambushed themselves. And as part of that ambush, there was a, you know, vehicle-borne IED driven by, you know, a suicide bomber wow. that um, exploded. And for, from what we understand, he, he was killed almost, almost instantly. And just to offer some context around the lethal and unforgiving nature um, in that part of Ambar province at that particular time, uh, his battalion, 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines, would lose 48 Marines and two Navy corpsmen um, during their, the course of their deployment in places like Haditha and, and, and Heat, making 325 one of the hardest battalions. In fact, I remember I was in 225 at the time. Of course, we, we were here stateside, and I was a you know young guy in the fire department, and we, were, we knew that some of us would be going to Iraq. And a lot of the briefs that we, we were getting out of Iraq at that time, um, you know, being in 25th Marine Regiment was coming from 325. And I remember going to drill weekend. And uh, I left active duty in 2004 when, during during Fallujah 1 and 2. So it wasn't lost on me how lethal Ambar was. But these intel assessments coming back, they were horrific. And, um, you know, many of us knew that we were probably going to find ourselves in very similar battle spaces in the, in the near future. And... And I felt like a lot of us had a, a sense of camaraderie with those in 325, particularly knowing that many of them were reservists, right, coming out of Western New York and, and Ohio. In fact, there was, there was a documentary that was produced. I, I actually don't think I've ever even asked if you've seen it. And I had completely forgotten about it until last night. I was kind of preparing um, the outline for today's conversation, and I revisited it. It's called Combat Diary, the Marines of Lima Company 325, and it was produced by A&E. Have you ever watched it? Uh, no, I don't think I have. It's uh, it's it's intense, and I I would encourage you know anyone in our listener audience kind of we got to be right in the right right place or right mindset to watch it. Inordinate amount of video um, from their daily you know platoon size patrols and company size operations in Western Ambar during that period, and then it, it it flips back and forth throughout the the course of the documentary where it's they're on patrol, um, they're like a catastrophic loss to to an entire Amtrak one particular day. I think everyone on board was uh was was killed in action. To then the coming home in, in the weeks and months following of what that transition was was like, and it's uh it's tough to watch, and I think we all kind of keep our own Ambar experience, you know, in like a metaphorical locker closet somewhere somewhere upstairs, and we we all visit it from from time to time. You know, in some ways it all means something different to each of us, but in some ways it also means similar things to to each of us. 
uh, and I know it's obviously even even more challenging for you probably to visit it from time to time, given that you did lose your 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 big brother. It's it's been 16 years since since your brother Jeff gave his life and service to our nation. And as you reflect on your brother's sacrifice and impacts that it had on your family, your mother, your sister-in-law, and your two nieces, how do you think it shaped you as a as a leader and person? I'm not sure I have a really uh, good answer. Un- undoubtedly. Um... It's had an uh, an impact on me, you know. One of the things that um, that helped me the most, you know, get get past his death, was the fact that there's no other alternative history that would have made him uh, happy and and fulfilled as um, you know as an individual. Obviously, you know, uh, you know, best case scenario was that he had a similar experience to me, whereas, you know, I, I got to have my rite of passage and I, and I made it home. Obviously, that's the best case scenario, you know, and, and the one that um, we all you know, hoped for. But not doing it was unthinkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that really obviously speaks to who your, your brother was um, and like so many but yet so few. He was directly inspired by the events on the morning of 9-11 to the extent that he went looking for more and, and joined up, was a little bit older in life and was you know, married when he went on this particular deployment and had two kids, like certainly a lot to a lot to lose, but probably more more accurately, like a lot to a lot to give of of himself and, yeah. and came his his sacrifice obviously came at tremendous cost to your family, but what what's really interesting about this this story is that there's even another layer to it. Um, you you mentioned your relationship with David during the season, and uh, we'd be remiss if I didn't mention that your youngest brother David, who had who had actually signed in his enlistment contract in the spring of 2005 prior to Jeff's death, shipped to boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina, only three weeks later after Jeff's death. And I, Josh, I'm not even sure that the word resilience actually captures the level of fortitude displayed. When a young man like David and a Gold Star family such as yours maintains that level of commitment in the immediate wake of that sort of loss, what was it like to send David off to, to boot camp? You know, to be honest, like like the the gravity of that really wasn't apparent to me until you know I kind of saw this question. You know, as I mentioned before, like kind of at the time, like like I said, I, I was uh, I, I was in a different place, and you know, I was kind of like. You know, skipping steps in my my whole grieving process. It says a lot about you know David, you know my my, my little brother. And at the time, I, I don't think I really gave it. I don't really think that I um, you know saw the significance you know in in his resolve to you know still you know ship out for boot camp. And you know my mother had a hard time with it. But you know as I mentioned kind of previously, you know people have to be free to kind of pursue you know, their own path and do the things that are, are going to fulfill them. Th- this was something that, you know, my little brother had aspired to for a long time. And um, while it definitely made, you know, the whole experience harder on him, you know, like I said, like, that's one of the things I kind of regret that I wasn't there for him a little more. I think I, you know, I should have been a little more sympathetic um, instead of, uh, you know, kind of kind of pushing him because actually, you know, he went to boot camp. His drill instructors obviously knew, you know, he had just lost a brother weeks prior so not not that he got special treatment, but he he was able to make a few more phone calls 
throughout the process. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, and, and I give, you know, the Marine Corps, I, I don't know if it was just as your instructors or if it was the Marine Corps as a whole, but, you know, like it was definitely the right thing to do. Absolutely. You know, and like, you know, they could have very easily just treated them like everyone else. And, you know, I, I don't think David would have uh, had a problem with that, but he was definitely going through some things, uh, you know, things were kind of playing out in, in, in his head on top of, you know, like the really stressful, you know, situations that, you know, that, that you're dealing with in, in, in boot camp. And there was a couple of times he called me, you know, my, my advice to him was like, your, your strength has to come from, from within. And, you know, while, you know, that, that's good advice. It's advice that I, that I try to, to live by. And, and I think it's good advice for everyone at, like at that time, it probably wasn't like the, like the most helpful thing, thing to say. And, and actually, I have a debt of gratitude toward, uh, you know, Doc Cleveland, uh, Taylor Cleveland, who, who was a close friend to my brother during that deployment. He was able to kind of fill, fill, fill that gap. You know, he was able to send my brother encouraging letters. Not that I didn't, but coming from me, I, I think I, I was just like, a, I was a bit uh, too rough. Yeah. I, my sense is, to, though, too, is that as you reflect back on this um obviously very, very challenging period of, of, of your life, not just professionally and personally, that you're, you're being pretty hard on yourself too. And I, I think that, I think one of your strengths, having been your, your friend now for, for so long, is that you are the stoic, tough life, love type, right? And we, we all need somebody who's going to be offering encouragement and sometimes in gentler, kinder ways. But I think particularly in the, this business, man, whether it's the, the fire department, whether it's the Marine Corps, whether it's family, I, I think that sometimes having someone who's more more stoic and, and is there to offer the tough love is equally significant. There's no doubt that what th the three of you and your family did during this period of, of time is is nothing shy of phenomenal. I mean, there's so many layers to it, but it really speaks to the to the resolve and fortitude and, and resilience of of all of you. And I I got to think it starts at the top, man. It starts with your, uh, your your mother, right? For her to send her 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 baby off to boot camp after that tumultuous season that really speaks um to the type of person that she she is and her love not only for her for her family but for for our nation so i'd like to transition um the following year in 2006 you, you entered the ranks of the fdny you mentioned earlier you became interested in pursuing a career with the fire department after you transitioned out of the marine corps in 2002 and you had the opportunity to take the test upon completion of probate school you were assigned to ladder company 133 in south jamaica not Certainly not a bad place to be assigned out of probate school, one of the best work-to-run ratios um, for all FDNY companies. And you'd spend some time in 133 before making your way to Squad 252 in Brooklyn. I'm, I'm curious, as a, as a combat Marine and an NCO of, of Marines at the time, who's now in the infancy period of your, your career as a firefighter, what, what aspects, cultural, organizational, operational, of, of the FDNY really resonated with you as a, as a young man who had who had served his nation abroad, what aspects of, of the FDMY were really appealing to you in your initial years? So initially, when, when I first started pursuing the FDMY, it was, uh, it was as I was coming off active duty, you know, prior to my deployment to Iraq. And I was seeking in the FDNY what I felt like I, I wasn't getting, you know, in the Marine Corps at the time, you know, during my first four years. Yeah, I wanted to be battle battle tested, and and I thought that you know I saw the the FDNY as a place that I I could do that, and it was also a profession that I respected. 
I, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but my my older brother, he was uh, a volunteer fireman in the in the town that I grew up in. He started around like the age of like 13 as like a junior, and then you know when when he turned 18. I think I don't think you can go interior until you're 18. Okay. Since I'm a, a you know a child, like the the fire service was was kind of like you know it was a part of my childhood. I remember going, you know, going to to events, you know, that that they would have, you know, barbecues and, you know, I remember kind of like, you know, you know, sniffing around like the fire trucks and stuff like that, but like my interest in in firefighting really didn't go anywhere like beyond that. I mean, I thought it was cool, but I really had no desire to kind of like do it my myself. I had a respect for it. You know, I, I said I don't know where my my interest in the FDNY came from, but I I actually think it you know came from from Jeff. I, I think he kind of like you know mentioned it to me like, oh hey, this test coming out, maybe we should take it. But yeah, I, I was in search of uh, like uh, I, I mean, how, how can I say this? I, I'm I'm uh, um, attracted to professions that tend to deal in like life and death. Um, I, I just feel like you know that like I, I think there's no higher calling. You know, I find that work to be extremely um, important and, you know, as well as like, you know, admirable, you know, I, I couldn't see myself doing anything else, you know, for, for a career. You know what I mean? It had to be something of like, you know, life and death importance. Sure. So after a few years in 133 truck, you transitioned to, to SOC, more specifically Squad 252 in, in, in Brooklyn. And despite both of us being combat marines who served in ambar uh with infantry battalions 252 is actually the first place where we would where we would meet i'd like to explore that transition from your perspective and uh unpack particularly those leaders who shaped your development when you went to sock as a as a firefighter yeah so i i was really lucky to go to uh ladder 133 um at at a proby school it's a place that you know it's not not easy for for people to get to and I, I was very fortunate, you know, the fact that I got to go there, you know, for my first assignment. It was a great place to work. I, I, I went to, uh, you know, a good amount of fires, worked with some, some, some great firemen, fire officers, learned a lot. I think, you know, part of my personality is uh, I like to move around. Working in one neighborhood for your whole career, while it's pretty commonplace, you know, in the FDNY, and and there's a lot of uh, you know value to it. You know what I mean? This guy, you know, guy spends 20 years in the same neighborhood. He he knows everything about that. You know, he knows the buildings, knows where the hydrants are. There's a lot of value in that. Sure. Um, but just for me personally, you know, I was kind of like in search of of more. You know, I wanted to do more. You know, I knew that there were other you know other units in the FDNY that did more. It, it got put in my mind to maybe you know pursue you know going to a special operations company. So I went to go, you know, interview with uh, with John Hopkins at uh, you know Squad Two Fifty Two. Yeah, I think part of that proclivity to stay in motion, I, I guess, is a product of the Marine Corps, right? Yeah, you're, yeah, right. You're always moving. Yeah, whether it's on deployment or whether it's active duty component, like just about the time you become confident and comfortable in something, like the organization is, it's a move up and move out organization, and everyone right. is in. Everyone is in a perpetual state of, of motion, and I, I think, uh, you know, that certainly resonates with, with, with me. So you mentioned uh, at, the, at the time Captain John, John Hopkins, presently Chief John Hopkins. Who were, who were some of the leaders that shaped your development when you got to SOC as a, as a firefighter? Largely, it was, uh, you know, Captain Hopkins at the time. He's a, he's a chief now. He helped me to kind of cut through 
to what was most most important. You know, he was kind of like a um, like a bare bones, tactically sound oriented officer. You know, like while you know he's got a ton of knowledge. He told me that you know streamlining it, your tactics and skills should be as uh, you know streamlined and and, and simple as, as possible. Yeah. You know, I, I think we probably both hold him in, in high regard. And, you know, as a, as a firefighter, I, I was blessed to work with for three phenomenal, you know, captains. Joe Principio up in the Bronx, like, legendary 42 years on the FDNY. His his career started the year I was born. Like, I mean, um, one of the most senior guys on the FDNY at, at, at present. Then Captain Hopkins, for a rather brief ter- period of time before going to work for Captain Liam Flaherty for six years and, you know, arguably one of the best fire officers in, in the FDNY. And I, I know I'm biased, but I also know a lot of people that didn't work in his company would certainly probably a, a, agree with that. Um, what's interesting is of those three, like Captain Hopkins or Chief John Hopkins is probably a little bit less of a household name just because he's similar to yourself. He's like such a, <laughs> he's like one of the quietest professionals that I, that I know. And you know, 35 years in the FDNY, arguably all great places along the way, pretty storied career. And, you know, his, his hobby um, for 20 plus years of his life was Air Force pararescue. You know, he was, he was a PJ. And it's funny, my, my first introduction to, to Captain Hopkins came in the form of an email. And I was actually in Okinawa and I received it. And he said, hey, how, um, w- would you be interested in coming to, to SOC? I'm recruiting a couple of guys, uh, a couple of them being combat Marines. And you know you're on my you're on my radar. Would you, would you consider that opportunity? It was so so great because I had actually just had suffered a setback that was going to prevent me from going on a, on a deployment to Afghanistan. I was a little I was I was a little down and disappointed. And here I'm in Okinawa checking my email, and I was like, oh, this this sounds like a great opportunity. So when I came back, I I went to meet with him, and he said to me, I think he told everyone in our peer group this right that he was recruiting, or that was looking to come to the company. He said, I you're going to come. I'm going to train you. I'm going to be demanding, and I'm going to prepare you to lead in the future, whether it be in a rescue company or as a company officer. Ideally, is both, and you're not going to stay a day in my comp- a day longer in my company than you need to be. If the opportunity arises in two years, you're out the door. If the opportunity arises in six months, you're out the door. And to his credit, I mean, you, you talk about leadership development. I mean that you know that that's the shining light of of what leadership development looks like, um, like that level of commitment that that passion to identify guys that you think have an opportunity to be be better and then equip challenge train them and empower them you look at the guys that he brought over in the time that we were there and talking about you know being a man of his word and how many guys he he was able to get promoted or off to rescue companies or or both and yeah he just has like such an uncanny ability to take an environment or a test that's inherently complex and and reduce it to to the most simplistic form, right? Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, he was he was an incredible mentor. Um, who else during that period had some influence on on you? Yeah, I worked with a bunch of great officers over there. Um, but one that I would definitely like to mention is uh, you know Lieutenant Brian Sullivan, who passed away you know two summers ago from a, a light and duty uh, injury. One of the things that was so great about about Sully was that while being a sharp and, and tactically proficient, he was 
very relatable. You know, he, he was, he was a regular guy and, you know, he had the ability to kind of, uh, you know, light, lighten up the room, you know, I learned a ton working with him and, uh, I, I, I certainly laughed a lot as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of, uh, you know, put a, put a price on that. Yeah, he really was. He was the, the quintessential regular guy. Um, didn't take himself too seriously, right? Particularly in day-to-day life around, around the firehouse, but but certainly when it was time to go to work, he was all business um, and held himself and others to a very high standard. But in, in many ways, too, like he was like Captain Hopkins' counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah kinda, right. And right. you kind of need that. You know, I had a guy recently says, like, I, every company needs, like, one dentist as a boss. Like, when he comes to work, they know they're going to be out drilling, like, yeah, yeah. nonstop. But then sometimes the guys the guys need, like, a little bit of a counter <laughs> counterpoint, right? You can't have right. four ulcers that are wired the same. Yeah. And as great as it was, was to, do, you know, to do a, a tour. Sometimes a single tour with Hopkins, right? It was nice every once in a while to catch a, a tour with Sully because it was just uh, a little different climate, right? And they're, they're yeah. both uh, highly influential for, for sure. And I know that we share common sentiments about both those gentlemen. So, so Josh, I'd like to kind of wrap up our conversation today by talking about one other organization that we're, we've both been a part of, and that's Leadership Under Fire. And uh, you're, you're one of the original plank owners of LUF. In the winter of 2012, a few of us Marines ventured upstate to a cabin for a weekend retreat where we explored the, the merits of launching a concept focused on leadership and mental performance. Nearly a decade later, I think it's fair to say that we've been somewhat successful in helping the fire service, the FDMY, and other high-risk industries to address human performance and leadership in a far more proactive fashion. When you think back to that weekend, which consisted of nothing more than a few seasoned combat Marines who were rather junior in their time in the FDNY, discussing how to make the fire service even better over beers, um, more accurately, may. <laughs> Many beers and, and some very spirited conversations. Um, how, how do you think we're doing, man? I think, uh, you know, it, it's pretty incredible uh, to see how many people have, uh, you know, have embraced the, uh, the ideas. You know, one, one of my thoughts initially, while, you know, it, it made sense to me, you know, I, I also thought that it would be a bit provocative if for no other reason, then you know members tend they just tend to be resistant to uh, to change, even if uh, you know even if it makes sense. You know the fact that it's gotten almost immediate widespread uh, buy-in is uh, I think is it's a testament not only to to the sound concepts, but you know more importantly the approach you know that you took and 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 you definitely bring you know a good amount of credibility uh, to the table. You know that whole you know bottom-up approach with top-down support. You know, with uh, you know the emphasis being on making us better at fires and emergencies, um, first and foremost, I think really uh, help people to kind of uh, accept it as doctrine. So, are there any areas then? Um, that's something we've we've done well, and 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 thank you for your your kind remarks. And I, I should probably mention, you know, obviously I'm I'm appreciative for your your contributions over the years to LUF, and like I said earlier. You might look at it at times as a weakness, but I look at your your stoic personality and your tough love sometimes as a as a strength. Not just in our relationship uh, within the FDNY as as fellow company officers or in our time together in in uh, as firefighters in, in, in Squad Two Five Two, but also as I navigated the the challenges associated with the Marine Corps ordeal. You know, I, I agree, really appreciate. It. And the other thing too is, and, and today's kind of a, a testament to to your own personal journey. 
like years ago, I don't think I could have, there's no way I could have gotten you in a podcast studio to talk about yourself. Yeah, no, I, I barely came here today. <laughs> or, to, or to certainly talk about your, um, you know, your, your brother's sacrifice. And, uh, you know, particularly in, in the past year or two, you've, you've really started to, to step up and become more, more vulnerable. And I know that that's, uh, that's not something you, you, you probably haven't um, thoroughly in, in <laughs> enjoyed it in, in all regards. Um, but I know that like people can't benefit from your experience and your insight and perspective um, if you're not willing to share. And, and uh, you know, it's not lost on me that it's, it's been challenging for you to be a little bit more vulnerable and forthcoming with, with folks. You know, I've always been a straight shooter, obviously, but a little bit more willing to, to open up. And, uh, you know, I think that's significant because we can't humanize the narrative unless we're, we're willing to be, to be vulnerable, um, not just about our strengths, right, and our wins but equally significant about our, our losses and, and setbacks along the way. And, and uh, your story and your service is, is nothing less than compelling, and I appreciate that. So let me ask you, is there an area or theme, when you think to the future, is, an area, is there an area or theme or topic where you think we have a real opportunity to make an impact in the future? So, you know, I think because now, you know, people are more aware of, of the uh, forces at work on them, you know, personally, I think it allows, uh, you know, people to have a conversation about, you know, uh, mistakes or, or shortcomings that, you know, typically, you know, in the past, you know, mo most people are not going to, uh, you know, volunteer that information unless your reputation was kind of was well established before. I, I think I, I, I think it was Danny Murphy who, who said, like, you know, one of the one of the ways he would kind of like to approach and and after action was you know to talk about you know well what you know what did you do what you know what mistake did you make or you know what what would you do you know differently or whatever and, and you know he would go first you know we've we've talked about it in the past too it's like you know you got to be careful you know when you have all the answers to the test like when you when you know how the situation unfolded it's easy to kind of go back and and think that uh what you did was a mistake, um, but you were just kind of operating off of, you know, whatever assumption. The, you know, you were operating off the, the information that you had at the time. Sure. So I, I think there's, a, you know, it's a huge opportunity um, in training because, you know, like, you know, tough realistic training, that, that's going to, you know, translate, you know, to the real world. So I think, you know, people having that understanding now and, and, and a way to kind of talk about it is only going to help us. Yeah, I think there's there's huge opportunities to improve that process. You know, both how individuals approach it, how teams approach it, and how organizations approach it. Like you said, trying to make sense of performance, knowing that the that the individuals right under pressure and stress didn't have the answers to the test, and they were operating with probably you know much much greater uncertainty at that moment in time. But you know, when I think back, it is right. It's hard not to laugh. Like about that weekend in that remote austere cabin upstate <laughs> almost 10 years ago where where we drank, you know, far too many beers. But obviously, we were able to have a conversation that that really solidified th this concept, never knowing that we were going to be able to probably do some of the things that we've been able to do. And it, it, it's it's fun to reflect on, but it's even more exciting to think about all the, all the opportunities that we're going to have in the years and years to come. Absolutely. To help people to become better versions of themselves. And I, I'm thankful um, for your role on the, on the team. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for your, uh, your, your friendship over the many years. And, and I'm thankful for your, your willingness to kind of step outside your comfort zone again today and come into Midtown and sit down for a, a candid conversation 
um, about some of your, your experiences, both as a Marine and as, as a member of the FDNY. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like uh, I have received more than, uh, than I've given. Um, so I'm trying to kind of maybe change that a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm confident that a lot of individuals will, uh, will benefit from that. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.